Oh, he's Frank Sinatra to me. He's uh, Bing Crosby. He's Barbara Streisand. He's the perfectionism of Streisand and, and the professionalism of Sinatra. He was just a pleasure to work with. I never, ever had a problem with him, ever. No matter what he did after, the Partridge family still is the biggest thing he ever did. It was bigger than life. And um, although he did, like I said, some Broadway stuff that was just fabulous and well-received, and, you know, I think of him as being a consulate professional with a one-of-a-kind voice, with an incredibly big heart. And he cared so much. He cared so much about people. And, I, you know, the fact that 50 years later, we can listen to that music and it still plays today. Or is it because it brings back such memories of our childhood? Some of the songs, I really pushed the harmonies to, to levels that rock and roll hadn't gone. But I was confident because the, the audience was still there. And David David's sound was doing... 90% of the selling. So I did some harmonies that if a musician looked at them on paper, they'd say, you can't do that in rock and roll. <laughs> you know? You are listening to the David Cassidy Connections with your host, Louise Poynton. Hello and welcome. My very special guest this week is renowned arranger, conductor, composer and producer, John Baylor. One of the most recorded singers in history, his voice has appeared on hundreds of movie soundtracks, top 40 hits, television show themes and jingles. John has worked with some of the biggest stars, including Michael Jackson, Barbara Streisand, Frank Sinatra and Elvis. But he may, for many 1970s teenagers, be most remembered as the man who created the unique and much-loved sound of the Partridge family. The music, with lead vocals by David Cassidy and vocal arrangements by John, is considered the perfect example of what happens when you mix star quality and the best backing vocals with the musicians of the Wrecking Crew alongside beautiful lyrics which set new standards in pop music. John, with his brother Tom, started The Love Generation, John is married to Janet Lennon, one of the Lennon sisters. In our compelling conversation recorded in early November, John opens up on a range of subjects, sharing anecdotes of his life story, including the influence his father had on his career, how he created the Partridge family sound, pushing the harmonies to new levels. He explains how a song is structured and singing techniques his friendships with David Cassidy and Michael Jackson, and working with Barbara Streisand. And he also tells us where he rates David in the history of American pop music. We started by talking about recordings he made in London with Lulu, and at Abbey Road with the London Symphony Orchestra. I was staying in London, but um, I was there to record Lulu. We did uh, Westfell, and I did an album with her in, in L.A., and she had a... <clears throat> She had a cold or she was hoarse or something. Anyway, uh -huh. she couldn't get her vocals done. So I had to fly to England to produce her vocals. And, and um, it was great because I got to stay at her house. Uh, I used to go, go to her house and have dinner and her friends would make me shepherd's pie and all that kind of stuff I had never had before. It was a delightful trip. I just loved it. The recording at Abbey Road I did was for a commercial and I had the LSO there. And that was incredible. In fact, somewhere I have a picture that my assistant took of me conducting the Abbey Road, uh, I mean, conducting the LSO. And it was so cool. And everybody was so cool, except for one trombone player. He would not stay with, and I was up against the clock. I had to get this 
music in in 60 seconds and he was a, a beat behind me the whole way he never did catch up i think he didn't like me <laughs> but i did get them to laugh because when i got up on the podium i said good afternoon ladies and gentlemen and they all they all laughed because there were only men in the orchestra then <laughs> so later on the the uh, concert master told me he said well at least you got off on the right foot they don't like americans over here coming over here and he said you made them laugh so that put them on your side so good didn't even know that but worked out um hopefully when we're all allowed to travel again you'll, you'll come back to london will you uh, i would love to my wife doesn't like to fly so i want to come to london again i want to go to my uh my family's birthplace which is in uh, Wattenville, switzerland oh wow and uh, all the Baylors come, the Baylors that spell their name the way I do, all come from Bottonville. And there's still a bunch of them there. And it's, my brother's been there. And he said all the people that he met there were into music and computers. Oddly enough, that's what Tom and I are into, so. <laughs> yes. But since Facebook, I found Baylors all over the country. In fact, there's another John Baylor, he's younger. And when he, when he posted that he was getting married, you should have seen the replies I got. <laughs> It was just a couple of years ago. He's a youngster. I mean, he's in his 30s, I think. But wow. his father, Brad, and, and I met a cousin from Indianapolis, and, and we, we see each other quite a bit because his wife owns a, a, a tour company. So they come to Branson a lot, and I get to see him. And so, yeah, I found a lot of family members. Oh, that's wonderful. That's All my life, and every time I traveled, I'd look in the phone book and never find any bailers, you know. Uh, what I'd like to start with, first of all, John, is to explore your journey. Okay. What were the first memories of music in your life? Oh, my God. What, what, was, what was home life like and how important was music? Because I, do, I think your father played trumpet. Am I right? Father played trumpet, he played cello, and he played bass. I was born in New York City, and uh, my dad was back there working with my mom. We lived at 103rd and Riverside. And... Um, I was born and my dad said uh, one night he was, it was really weird because he, because he played cello so well, <clears throat> excuse me, he played cello in a, in a chamber group in a hotel lobby in the afternoons and then went and played in the pit orchestra at night, trumpet. So he was making good money for the day. I mean, it was, this was 1940. And um, he told me that one night he was walking home from work. It was about one or two in the morning. And he was walking home from work and he looked up at the buildings and looked all around and said, you know, I don't want to raise my kid here. I really don't. So he went home and talked to my mom. And before my brother was born, so I don't know if I was a year and a half or two, because Tom and I are two and a half years apart. And I don't think my mom was pregnant when we drove to California, but I obviously I can't ask either one of them. They're both gone. Um, but we moved to California when I was either a year and a half or two, somewhere around there. And my dad did a lot of different things. I mean, he was a disc jockey. He was, he was a crooner with, an, with, a, with a band. He, when he was 15, he started touring the United States with a group called Goodwin Goldie and the Goldcoats or something like that. It was weird. And so he ended up minoring in electronics and he ended up being a teacher. He he, back in the day of transistors, he was considered a maven. So he, he taught transistors at college, and then he worked in the R&D department of Douglas Aircraft and um, did very well there. In fact, when he was 65, he was forced into retirement. And everybody, including the vice president of the company, went to the board and said, we want to keep this man on. He's, we, he's still got brains left. We want to pick them until they're dry, you know? And they said, nope. 
legally we just can't insurance for insurance and now, nowadays it wouldn't happen but so he was forced into retirement and it, it really really affected him I and mean, he was 65 and in 15 years he was dead you know i mean he just he just went downhill year by year by year my brother and i could see it you know mm. and um so it was too bad we lost him at 80 and um that was in 1986 i believe or 87 and my mom died of alzheimer's she was she was an excellent singer by the way but she only sang in church sang in choirs and people always say well i can pick your voice out of a choir you know well my mom was the same way she was the only white lady in the black choir at one church she sang at for years and we listen to recordings now of them and we can hear my mom she was just a soprano from hell so we both tom and i kind of came by our talent because of genes my dad was a great singer and um but they weren't known as singers. My dad was known as a trumpet player, as a bass player, as a cello player. He played French horn as well. Played in the studios. When Talkies first came, he was on staff at one of the big movie studios. And although he didn't want Tom nor I to, neither one of us to go into music because it was so flaky, he did teach us things through the years that it changed by the time we got into recording. But when he was into recording in New York, they would record on wax and then send this wax plate very carefully to New Jersey where they would make an acetate and then, uh, or maybe it wasn't acetate, whatever it was made of, that was the master from which they pressed 78s. So at the end of a take, the contractor or the producer would say, okay, any mistakes? And dad said, if you made a mistake and didn't speak up, Two weeks later, they got the playback. Two weeks it would take for them to listen to a playback. And if they heard a mistake in there and it was you, you were never asked to play ever again, no matter how good you were. So we learned that, number one, you got to do it. You have to focus and not make a mistake, period. We all are human. If you make a mistake, you're the first one to raise your hand. Say, sorry. I mean, I used to stop stop dates even when we did live dates with Elvis and Frank and you know all those people if if uh, if I made an error which was thank God was rare I'd raise my hand and say sorry sorry folks yeah. I apologize but I also made sure that I never did that again <laughs> yes. yeah. Yeah. so I was born in New York City and my dad was getting ready for work one night and he was buzzing <laughs> warming up for play right and he stopped and he heard buzzing. And he thought, now that's weird. There's only me and my kid here. So he did it again and he heard it again and he realized it was coming from the crib. And he said, he went over to me and I was actually buzzing at less than two years old. Oh, wow. So at two years old, he laid his trumpet on the bed and walked me up to it. He said, the very first note I played was an actually pure note. And he thought, oh God, I'm in trouble. <laughs> So he tried to teach Tom and I, but it's like teaching your wife to drive. It just doesn't work. Uh, so he found us a teacher. His name was John Westerdahl in Inglewood there. When we, we moved back to L.A., we lived in Hawthorne. And then we finally settled in Morningside Park, which is part of Inglewood. In fact, my dad played. He was a member of Inglewood Country Club, which is it's now, <clears throat> excuse me, full of condos. And then down the hill where where the first hole used to be is where the forum is and then Hollywood Park which is next door is now that big huge football complex so anyway when when he walked me up to the trumpet and I played a note he thought oh god so he used to give me his horn to to 
play with. And, you know, what does a two or three year old kid do when he's finished with a toy? He drops it. <laughs> My dad had to, had to have his bell fixed so many times that they finally had to cover it in copper because it was so thin. He was playing a French besson then, I remember. And um, anyway, he found us a teacher at five. And this guy was not a great trumpet teacher, but he was a great music teacher in that when you're five, you learn to write the letter A, B, can I have another piece of paper, please? C, you know. And you learned, <clears throat> excuse me, you learn to spell at least the alphabet, and then you learn to sound out words and so forth and so on. At the same time, he was teaching us to write a C scale. I still have the book from 1945, 46, yeah. uh, where we had to write our own C scale, and then we'd go home and practice our music and then he would write a song up on the board and you'd have to copy it down so basically i'm telling you that i do not know what it's like to not be able to read and write music because i learned english and i mean i learned the the spoken and, and read language at the same time i was learning so i don't know what it's like to not be able to do that it's like second nature for me my wife asked me janet asked me one time i was writing a score she said do you hear that all that in your head and i said yeah, doesn't everybody? She said, no. <clears throat> How can you look at all those black dots and know what it sounds like? And I said, I don't know. I just do. As journalists, we had to learn shorthand. Yeah. It means nothing to most people. No. Yet we can look at these scribbles and tell you exactly what it is. My mom, <laughs> my mom was a shorthand queen, and I totally understand. Yes. She tried to set me down and show it to me, and it was like, forget about it. <laughs> yes, just squiggles on paper. And I suppose some, a lot of people have that reaction to music. Yeah, it'd be like looking at a foreign language. I mean, yes, exactly. it's like looking at Chinese or Japanese. What the hell does that mean? Did you always want to go into music as a result of that early introduction? Not really. I loved it. I loved performing. I performed in church. I played trumpet in church. I played... I played trumpet in the church orchestra until I was 15, and the minute it was Pentecostal church. <clears throat> the minister found out I had played for a dance on Friday night and called me into his office and said, you're, you're out of the orchestra. And I said, but sir, why? He said, you played for a dance. And I said, but I wasn't dancing. Because in Pentecostal religion, no makeup, no dancing in those days. This was in the 40s. And I said, but I wasn't dancing. And he said, ah, but you were playing for it. That's the work of the devil. You're out of here. Killed me. Killed me. Not only killed me, it killed the orchestra because at 15, I was better than anybody in there. Wow. I mean, I played out of a hymnal, which is in the wrong key. Sight reading, no problem. Uh, like I said, I don't know what it's like to not be able to sight read. Where did you get your work ethic from? It, it was from my dad. Okay. Dad taught us a lot of things, all based on logic all based on common sense. And we quickly learned as we grew into adulthood that the world is lacking in both of those things, logic and common sense. And it's a general statement, but you understand what I'm talking about. Yeah. And that and, and the way he taught us what it was like in the studios, how focused you had to be, how on top of everything you had to be. Uh, the Tom and I, well, me more than my brother. My brother's a little looser, but I think that was my mom's influence because she had a very strange sense of humor and and um, was a lot looser than my dad. My dad was pretty buttoned up when it came to music. You know, it was however he had great feel. Man, he had great feel. He had the feel of a black man. He was just such a player. 
and uh, had such great rhythm. And and, uh, and he passed that on to us, obviously. Well, especially me, I can dance better than my brother. That's been a family joke for 70 years. <laughs> but yeah, the discipline came from my dad. I was not a disciplined practicer. I didn't practice with discipline. And I'm sorry about that because I think I could have been better. But uh, as far as sight reading and, <clears throat> excuse me, all that stuff and the focus involved, the, um, what's the word, uh, uh, discipline, mm-hmm. I got mainly from my dad. And even though he, he tried everything to talk us out of going into the business. But then when we got into the business and we were extremely successful, of course, he was very proud. He wouldn't tell us. He'd tell other people. <laughs> well, th- that is the generation, isn't it? Yeah. As you get older, you just come to accept and understand that. and think. Oh. Well, you know what my brother did? He told me we were in our 30s, I think, which means dad was in his 60s, late 60s. And uh, Tom told me, he said, I'm just going to start hugging dad when we leave. He lived in a little place out in the desert, he and my stepmom. And uh, he said, I'm just going to start hugging dad and giving him a kiss on the cheek and telling him I love him and see what happens. Started out that dad would kind of pull away and go, Stephanie, what are you doing? What are you doing? You know, mm-hmm. but by the end, he said, I love you. Okay. We talked, we totally broke that shell. Mm-hmm. And the last time I talked to him on the phone, the last thing he said to me was, I love you. So we knew he did. He just wasn't, like you said, that generation weren't able to show their feelings. For a long time, I thought I had been born to 20 years too late, you know, that my interests were more in the music of the 30s and 40s. And, and uh, But once I got into the 70s, I knew I was where I was supposed to be. That was your calling. Yep. Yeah. And I followed it. I got out of the Navy without anything. I was six years in the Navy and had... Uh, had a son and a daughter in the oven and uh, moved to L.A. And I, I had a part-time gig that my brother got me, but I didn't know what was going to happen. And I'm so glad I did because I was going to stay in the Navy. They wanted me to stay in. They were, were interested in me going to officer candidate school and becoming an officer and all of that oh. as I was enlisted. And um, I kept thinking to myself, I don't want to be 70 years old looking back saying, what if? What if I had given it a shot in the studios? And uh, I finally decided to give it a shot. And I'm so glad I did because I'd just be an old Navy vet now. (laughs) (laughs) As you sit here with your Navy. Oh, yeah. I'm very proud of my years in the Navy. I was in the Navy band in Washington, D.C. I marched in Kennedy's funeral. I mean, I had a lot of great things going on back in those years, you know. But I re-upped for two years after four. And after spending one year of that two years, I knew I wanted to get out. I knew I had to get out and at least try. And I really, in my heart, knew that the Navy would take me back if I wanted to go back. In fact, I've had many, many dreams of going back. In some ways, there was so little pressure on me in the Navy compared to the business, you know. Mm. But I can't say I wasn't prepared. My dad prepared us, both of us. Yes, well, it was your destiny, wasn't it? Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, now I look at it and say, yeah, absolutely. There was a group on Andy's show called The Good Time Singers. Right. And my brother knew them. And there's a guy named Dave Jackson who was a bass player and a silly, silly guy. He was should have been doing stand-up. He was hysterical. Uh-huh. In fact, he called Andy Mr. Simpson, and my brother and I called Mr. called him Mr. Simpson until the day he passed away. Um, he was a neighbor of mine here. You know, he lived right down the street from us. So right. it's really funny when he got married. We were at a we were at a, at a golf tournament for it was a Bob Hope's golf tournament, and Andy was there. His wife's a great golfer. 
there was a bunch of us standing around and he said, oh, I don't think you guys have met my wife, Debbie. And so he went around and introduced everybody, came to me and he said, this is Mr. Simpson. Because <laughs> I called him Mr. Simpson my, the whole time I knew him. And I don't know where that came from, except Dave Jackson started it in the late 60s. And so what happened was I replaced Dave in this group. In the meantime, they were taken off the show, but they had some gigs. We went out on the road with Roger Miller and, you know, and people like that. But it was really not a moneymaker. But it allowed me to live until I got my first gig, which was a, a television show called Swingin' Country with Roy Clark and Molly B and Rusty Draper. And they were the mainstays. It was the, what it was, was hee-haw just way too early. <laughs> we, were on 11 in the, right. we were on 11 o'clock in the morning on NBC five days a week. And uh, it was a grueling schedule, but I I never mind. I, it was great. I loved it. I mean, I went, literally, I went from making $385 a month in the Navy to making 500 bucks a week on this show. And I was underpaid by 1500 bucks because they never paid me for writing, for arranging. Arranging basically for free. Uh, we'd do two a day, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And then we'd have a uh, meeting Friday, pre-production is Saturday, Sunday pre-record. No, Monday pre-record. Sunday was production meeting. And then we'd start taping on Tuesday. And we'd do two shows a day, three days. And that was for Dick Clark. And um, Swinging Country. Wow. Swinging Country. Swinging Country. That is was that, fun. Is that what then led to the the Love Generation being formed? Yes. Yes. Actually, the the Love Generation was a large part of that group that sang um, uh, on that. But that's how I met Ron Hicklin through a couple of people in the band kept saying Sonny Curtis and another guy kept saying, you got to meet Ron Hicklin, you got to meet Ron Hicklin. So finally, I never really met him, but I think it was February the following year because that show was, uh, my daughter was born on the 26th of December and on the 28th, the show was canceled. So yeah. I went from $500 a week to making nothing and having nothing in the future and I didn't know anybody and I auditioned for everybody I could in those days you took a little reel-to-reel -reel demo but that was the beginning of demos in 1966 mainly you'd have to go in and audition for these choral guys uh, and they'd point to uh, Alan Copeland for example pointed to an alto part and said sing it so I sang it and because uh, they'd ask me well are you a baritone no I'm a freak tenor what does that mean well I can sing high and I don't know why um, my brother, somebody asked my brother, how can you, you and John sing so high? And Tom said, nobody ever told us we couldn't, which is the right. truth. I mean, we just did it. I remember auditioning for all the, all the choir directors, mainly doing TV shows in those days. And every one of them said, God, I wish I could use you. I just hired so-and-so or just whatever. And one of them was George uh, Weil, who had Andy's show. And he said, man, I just hired a tenor last week. I wish I'd have known because I'd have hired you so fast. And I said, well, that makes me sad, but I understand. Life is what it is. And then unbeknownst to me, George Weil was a musical director and Ron Hicklin and several of future friends of mine were the, the group on the show. And they did a pilot. The pilot was sold. George Weil was, was doing Wendy. Andy, he didn't have the time. And Ron Hicklin was way too busy. And the other singers are way too busy. So I get a, I'm down to my last five dollars i mean literally i didn't know where i was going to buy milk for my son and my daughter was just an infant and i got a call from a guy named jack watson hi john yeah this is jack watson i'm the producer of a dick clark show called swinging country 
And uh, make a long story short, the people that did the pilot can't do the show and it's been picked up. Are you interested? No, no. He said, well, I just talked to George Weil and he said, I can't do it, but I know somebody who can. So that's how I got the show. And I picked the group and, and uh, Mitch Gordon and, and who I had sung with in the Navy. My brother auditioned. They said he looked too young, so they wouldn't let him sing in the group. He was in his 20s, but he still looked too, like a kid. Um, and... Uh, I remember Mike Storm, who ended up being a huge soap opera star, sang with us. He was part of a, the Good Time Singers or the, no, the Christie Mistrels or something. And they had broken up. So he was recommended and I took him on. And after a couple of shows, I had to go to him and say, you know, you're a great actor, man, but you're not making it in this group. And um, he got pissed at me, walked out mad. He tried out for a soap opera and ended up being a huge star. And I thought, I was right. <laughs> But yeah, out of that out of that show came the Love Generation, basically. When did the Partridge family first come on to your radar? Where did the invitation come from? I think originally it came from Billy Strange, who was um, kind of the semi-music director or pseudo-producer at the time for the pilot. And um, it came from Billy Strange. And I think he called Ron Hicklin and Ron called me. It was just a pilot to do a pilot. So we went in, and I remember that um, it wasn't on the first session, but one of the sessions we did, I think I love you, one of the first few, and there was a whole instrumental in the middle with nothing going on, and there was nothing written for us, nothing. Mm -hmm. And I had learned years before, I had a choice. I could either be there for a week, or I could jot some parts, and we could sing and get out of there. So that's what I did. I just filled it up with vocal stuff. And that little vocal interlude was all done on the session. And then I forgot about it. And then um, I got a call from Billy Strange. And um, he said, the pilot sold. And we want you to, we want you to um, contract the vocals. But you can't hire Ron Hicklin. And I said, really? Why is that? Well, he's too union. And these guys want to save some money. And they don't want to pay for double tracking. And I said, well, you know what, Billy? I love you, man. But you better find somebody else. And he said, what? I said, let me explain it to you. So I'm not trying to be mean. It's just that I'm a professional and I believe in what I do. And if I can't decide who to hire, if I can't hire the very best, in my opinion, to do the job, then I shouldn't do the job. If I'm told who to hire, you ought to get somebody else. So I'll call you back. So he called me back in a couple of days and said, okay, you can hire whoever you want. Uh, so obviously I hired Ron. I hired Ron, my brother, and Jackie Warren. And there was Sally Stevens and and uh, Stan Farber were in the original six, but they cut it down to four. To prepare for it, I was living, I was going through a divorce. So I was living in a one room place over in Burbank. And um, whenever I wasn't working, I would shut all the blinds, make it as dark in there as I could, put my earphones on and I listened to the Cow Seals because that's the family that the show was, was um, written for. Um, and uh, Mamas and Papas. Well, of course I had a background in freshman at high lows but i just listened to blends and different licks especially john phillips of the mamas and papas has some of the greatest vocal licks ever and the beatles basically some of the beatles stuff. i did this for a period of about two or three weeks every day when i wasn't working and then i put it all away opened up the blinds and didn't think about it for a week or two and then sat down to write the very first album and that was partridge family sound that's how that came out basically a family sound and that's one reason why my brother was in there i would, I would have used all relatives that had i had any 
Uh, because that's but Jackie and I had done so much work together and we sounded exactly alike Ron and I had sung so much together we sounded exactly alike so it was a no-brainer to get those four people together because we could all sound like each other had we needed to so Jackie sang the littlest girl's part and I was second with the second little girl's part or little boy's part and then Ron was the kind of the teenage tenor and my brother was the teenage bass we called him because he sang the bass part but it was an octave higher than a bass singer would sing it because they were all young kids yeah we look forward to those sessions I mean one I think it was the can't remember if it was the second to the last album or the third album we did it was the second to the last album uh we went in on a Saturday and we cut 13 sides in one day wow that's because everything was written and by then we knew what we were doing and uh, we just did it. And fortunately for me, Wes Farrell could always tell if an arrangement of mine was inspired or not. And if it wasn't inspired, he'd throw it out and uh, we'd do a head chart. Didn't happen very often, but he knew. And um, so by then, we I don't want to say formula because it wasn't really, a, it wasn't really a, a formula on purpose. It was just that we knew what the family sounded like by then and we were sticking to that. Although I must admit that on some songs like um, Albuquerque, uh, the other one was, uh, you don't always stand there. Uh, shoot, I can't think of the name of that song. Some of the songs I really pushed the harmonies to to levels that rock and roll hadn't gone, but I was confident because the, the audience was still there and David David's sound was doing 90% of the selling of the song, of the material. And um, I thought, well, we can grow. You know, the family can grow and learn stuff. And so I did some harmonies that if a musician looked at them on paper, they'd say, you can't do that in rock and roll. <laughs> you know? But it worked. It worked in the song. 30 or 40 years, people have been looking for stuff that was not released. Yeah. That we recorded. We did a lot of alternative versions, but they were for TV. One was record, one was TV. Right. Normally, the records would have a fade ending. And in TV, you had to have an ending. So we would do a version that had an ending. And then we would do the record version, which didn't. And also, the TV was mono and the records were stereo. So I can't remember this kid's name. He, he passed away really young, was the engineer for us and loved him. We mixed those albums on headphones. Oh, really? Everybody said, you can't do that. You have to have the big speakers and loud and turn it up. And that's the only way you get the heart and soul of the, you know, all of this BS. And we mixed on, and he and I would say, wait a minute. How can you possibly place things in a stereo picture? So we were able to pinpoint certain instruments in the stereo plane that other people weren't doing. And that's another reason I think that the records were so uh, so great to listen to, because they, if you listen to them on headphones, you'll see exactly what I mean. That's the way to listen to Partridge Family, in my opinion, is on headphones, because that's how we mix them. Yes. And yet over speakers, they sounded awesome. You can't pinpoint, I don't care how good the speakers are or how loud you play them, you can't pinpoint uh, in the stereo picture like you can on earphones. Yeah. I mean, you can pinpoint from behind your head all the way around. And it worked. Can you explain in layman terms for us how you write and arrange a song? Yeah. Do you arrange the backing and background vocals first? How does the structure of a song come together? Well, I was fortunate because I'm not a piano player. I play a ranger's piano, which means that I know enough about the piano that I can write a simple song. 
I can sit down and check voicings that I've already written down on paper to see how they sound, if they're right. The piano, by the way, is a dumb place to do it for vocals because it sounds, it can sound totally awful on the piano and sound great with voices. So I always had to keep that in mind. Same with strings. I mean, you can't really write strings on the piano, in my opinion. Okay, well, Wes would go in and cut the tracks. <clears throat> At the same time, David would do what we called a dummy vocal. He would do a scratch vocal, and then that was given to me. And from there, I would write the background parts. And then after that, we would add strings and horns. So it, it came down in that order. In fact, most of the time, we recorded the background voices before we did strings and horns. But toward the end there, Mike Melbourne and I, uh, who I miss him so much. We lost him a couple of years ago, and I just I loved that man. Michael and I just were like brothers. I mean, we were just like brothers. Yes. We had such immense gratitude for the other's talent and respect for the other's, other's talent that it went beyond all of that. I mean, it was just, he was one of the greatest human beings I've ever known in my life. I just loved that man. Mm. That losing him was also hurtful. Yeah. And I found out really late that I had, known, I had known he was sick, but I didn't know he was that sick. And then when we lost him, it's just like, ah. Uh, but, you know, you live long enough, you lose everybody. He and I would, just to break the monotony, I guess, uh, I would write the rhythm part for a song, give it to him, and he'd write the strings and horns. While, the, I, while I was writing the rhythm part to one song, he was writing the rhythm part to a different song. And then we'd switch charts. I'd write strings and horns to his, and he'd write strings and horns to mine. And it turned out that it really pushed us creatively because I would see things in a bass line that he wrote that I'd use for horns or whatever. And he would say, after hearing it, he would say, I never would have done that. And he did the same thing to me. So it was really wonderful. I mean, we really were able to push the envelope uh, and share each other's talent and, and uh, feed off of each other is the word I'm trying to use. And it really, really worked. Now, he never did any of the vocals. My brother did a couple of vocals on the Christmas album, and they were wonderful. Pretty much that was my, that was my bailiwick, and I didn't want to give up control. <laughs> Being a control freak, I wanted it to be mine. Once Wes put the tracks down with David's scratch vocal on it, uh, the only thing that would change would be David's vocal. Now, there were many, many times when I'd have to stop in the middle of a session and call David and say, look, right here, you're phrasing this like this. And I'd sing it to him. And we're wanting to phrase it like this. And I'd sing it to him. I don't want to lock you in, but which one are you most comfortable with? And nine times out of 10, he'd go with our phrasing. Mm. But it was always like a bar or just a few notes. It wasn't, but we wanted it to be tight, like a family. You know, we didn't want the, the lead singer being different from us. We wanted to be with him and, a cohesive sound and it always worked out and like i said nine times out of ten david would go with our phrasing so but that's the only thing otherwise then david would come in and do his finished vocals usually it took him one or two takes that's it yeah I've heard, I've heard that said many times that he would come in and it would be as you say one take two takes he was prepared did he ever ask you how he should sing any particular songs oh man i don't think so I may have helped him with phrasing mm. once in a while, but until the last album, I wasn't there for that many of David's lead lead vocals. Cause I was busy doing other things, but the last album, he wouldn't sing for Wes. He would only sing for me. So I produced all his vocals on the last album and it was a piece of cake. We had so much fun. 
just did the you, two of us. Yeah. yeah, did you enjoy Bulletin Board from the point of view it was a far more mature David singing under the Partridge family? Well, I watched him grow. He was 19, you know, when we started it. And I watched him grow, and, and Wes encouraged him, and so did I. Uh, keep doing what you're doing, man. It's selling. Yeah. <laughs> Don't even ask why. Just take the money. You made music, which was, you know, the soundtrack of, soundtrack of our youth, and you listen to that music, and you are instantly transported back there. You're a teenager again. You can feel and smell everything about that. Yep. It's amazing. It really is amazing because it was such a labor of love. And uh, I'd say 90% of it was inspired. Um, some of it wasn't. I can tell you the ones that aren't. <laughs> they, weren't. <laughs> they were still good, but they weren't hit records. You know, no. all the hit records were all inspired. I mean, there were things where I said, I'm the vessel. You know, I'm not in control of this. This is coming from somewhere else. And I'm just sitting here writing notes as fast as I can. Where do you rate that? in your career? Uh, it's in probably the top five, top five experiences that I had. I mean, right up there is conducting for Barbra Streisand and conducting for Andy Williams and singing with him. And I mean, they're really only a handful of, out of 35 years uh, of really top-notch moments in my life. And, and that was it. I mean, there was some stress involved. The last album, David and Wes were not seeing eye to eye because Wes wanted to be, I mean, David wanted to be an R&B singer, and Wes said, no, you'll never sell any records. And Wes was right, by the way. Um, and that's really why David left the show, because he was convinced he could be an R&B singer, and all the friends around him uh, convinced him that he could be an R&B singer. But he, since then, he, he did a, a, at least one R&B version of I Think I Love You that was terrific. But he wasn't that kind of singer. He didn't, he was different. He, it's another thing that he didn't like about himself. He didn't sound like anybody, and that bothered him. Can, can you remember the first day he came into the recording studio and you heard him sing? I don't. Mm. I don't. Isn't that something? I don't remember that day. I remember a lot of days, but I don't remember the first time I heard him sing. No. It may have been a playback. Right. I may not have been there, but I don't really recall. Yeah. But I knew immediately that the kid, well, first of all, I knew he was marketable and he was gorgeous. And it um, had a great personality, very, very caring heart he had. And um, and his voice was one in a million. It was just not like anybody else. And that was the thrill of David Cassidy, and it was his downfall in the end, in my opinion. He didn't like the fact that he didn't sound like anybody. Really? Yeah. So are you saying that he found it hard to accept that he was so different? Yes, very. Had he been able to do that, and maybe if his father wasn't so jealous of his success, that had a lot to do with it too. Yeah. His father was so jealous of David's success. Really awful to David. It's like anything else, you know, the more Wes and I would, would encourage him, his dad would say two things and we'd have to start all over, you know? And David was a professional on all fronts. He just couldn't accept it. That's my opinion. I mean, I may be completely wrong, but that's just my opinion of working with him all those years. I took him shopping the very first, because he was not dressing the part. <laughs> <laughs> so I said there was a little place around the corner from, from um, United Studios 
called Lenny's Boot Parlor. And it was just this little hole in a wall, little boutique. But he was selling all the clothes that were hip then. And you know what put him out of business? When when uh, dungarees or when Levi's came in, he did he never went with the flow. He oh. stayed with the slacks and the and the the uh, paisley shirts and the right. silk shirts and all that. And it finally drove him out of business. It's really too bad because but that's where I took David shopping and we we bought stuff and he looked great. And I was a good dresser because my mom always dressed us. She mm-hmm. always dressed us up for Sunday school and and uh, so I always loved nice clothes. And- you mentioned earlier on about recording um, I Think I Love You. Did you get the feeling then at that moment when David's vocals were, were, were put down that you had a huge hit on your hands? No doubt. No doubt. I mean, we could tell you as a group, our opinion, our four opinion, the four of our opinion, nine times out of 10, we can tell you when we finished the song, it was going to be a hit. And we were right probably 90% of the time. Were there any songs on any of the albums or perhaps there were some demos that you did that were never released as singles or should have been the hits that you think they should have been? One of them is a, was my very favorite arrangement of all times, and I got to arrange the strings, the horns, the everything. Uh, roller coaster. That should have been a single, in my opinion. It was fun. It was fast. It was had energy. It was just from the brass. Even though I'm bragging on myself, I mean the brass parts, the string parts, the rhythm parts, the way David sang it, the background, everything, to me was should have been a hit. Yep. Yeah, uh, and then a song that Tony Asher and I wrote. It's so weird. After all these albums, uh, I was head of production for Wes Farrell's production company, and uh, we brought in a friend of mine, Tony Asher, uh, to run a, a jingle, a commercial division. So Tony and I worked together every day. We we ended up being partners year, years later. But Tony was an unbelievable lyricist. He wrote. Uh, all of Brian Wilson's hits on Pet Sounds, Tony wrote. Right. Uh, yeah. Caroline, no, wouldn't it be nice? Um, God only knows. I mean, who would start a love song with I May Not Always Love You? I mean, that's just stupid. But Tony's still a dear friend. He's suffering from dementia and and is um, he sounds like he's there when we talk. But his wife said that five minutes later, he won't remember who he talked to and what they talked what we talked about. So it breaks my heart because he's he was so brilliant. Um, well, one day I walked in the office and I said, Tony, he said, what? I said, why haven't we written a song for the Partridge family? This is really stupid. And he went, yeah, you're right. It is dumb. I know the producer. (laughs) So he said, what do you got? And I said, well, nothing yet. I'll talk to you tomorrow. So I went home and was just messing around with piano groove and came up with how long is too long. Yeah. That's all I had. But I came in the next morning and started, I said, here it is. I started playing it. You know, how long is too long? How long is too long? And Tony said, stop. I said, what? He said, what does it mean? How long is too long? And I said, you're the lyricist. Figure it out. And he did. It was a great lyric. In fact, that song ended up on the Greatest Hits album for one reason. Because one of the vice presidents at Bell, I think it was Bell at the time, it was his favorite Partridge family of all time. So he put it on the big, the greatest hits album. That's something. That's something else, isn't it? And I keep thinking about it. I've never received a penny for that. Oh. And 
I know who published it and I've, I've looked around for it before, but I got so tired of waiting, waiting on the phone that I, but I'll, I'll keep looking. I know there's a few hundred bucks out there somewhere. <laughs> but when you look back at the early Partridge family catalog, what were your favorite songs? Um, probably I leaned toward uh, Tony Romeo, anything he wrote. So anything he, anything he penned, I, I, uh, they were so weird. They were so off the wall, mm-hmm. uh, musically, lyrically, whatever. And then you've got David's voice painting the most beautiful picture. Yeah, there you go. You can't miss. It's just the perfect combination, wasn't it? There you go. Exactly. Perfect combination of everything, of the musicians, of Wes, of David, of us, the writers, the, you know, all of that. And, you know, I, I didn't want to know anything about the family story-wise. My only interest was their performing ability and what they would do as performers. So I never, I stayed away on purpose. I wish I had. I wish I'd have gone and watched some tapings and stuff, but I just didn't think it was appropriate for me. That's just me. But in the beginning, see, they didn't know, nobody knew David Sang. So that's why the four of us were the family and the leads before David were my brother and Stan Farber. Together, they were the the lead sound. And because my brother and I had been in a group, um, Love Generation, we used a lot of our stuff. You it did. was good stuff and it was written by good people. And, and so that's what they used. Yeah. Until hmm. Wes found out David could sing and he went, wait a minute. Yes. I remember Wes walked in. <laughs> Here's this New York guy. And uh, he walks into the producers and he said, do you want hit records or not? <laughs> and they said, who are you? And yes, we do. He said, well, hire me and I'll give them to you. He hired him and he did. Well, he was an excellent producer, wasn't he? Oh, excellent, yeah. Because you worked for him later, didn't you, for his, his record company for Chelsea? He started Chelsea Records. He asked me to be the head of production. Yeah. So I oversaw all production and doing some producing myself. Like we produced a group called, the group was called New York City, black group. And... um we did the tracks in L.A. Oh, no, we did. The, we wanted to do the tracks in New York. So I flew back to New York and did the tracks there. That was a great experience, a really great experience. Great players. Different, different from L.A., but great players. And, um, uh, yeah, that was really fun. Did you approve of Wes's decision to slow David's recordings down that quarter track, have him sing in his own voice and then bring we had been done. We had done that for so many singers. Oh, Bobby Sherman. Um, it's the only one that comes to mind, but we did it for everybody. We needed him to sound younger than they were. He was playing a 16-year-old. He was 19. It wasn't, it wasn't very much. It wasn't, because you can make him sound like Mickey Mouse if you want to. If you slow down enough. And it sounds phony. But if you just do it a little bit. Now, because I have good relative pitch, I couldn't be around when they, when they would use a uh, potentiometer to slow the tape down or speed it up while they were playing it, right. it would make nauseous. The pitch doing that would make me throw up so I'd have to leave. Right. So I could never be around when they did that. When David was in the studio with you, and we've all heard about the intense hours that he spent on the set, and then he'd spend the evening recording and then be doing his concerts at, at weekends. What was he like to work with in the recording studio? Was he always oh. interested in what was going on and... Did he offer suggestions and become he involved? Was, he was a hundred percent there, and it was it was like it was the only relaxation he got all day. That was my impression. Mm-hmm. He loved it, right? Loved singing, and um, and he was 
there to please, true, true professional. And um, he had fun. I mean, I never really realized until later how hectic his life was, especially on weekends, you know? Um, I had no idea uh, what he was doing because I didn't hang out with him. I just saw him in the studio. But when I worked with him in the studio, he was a consummate pro and there to have fun and there to do a great job. And turn things around quickly. Was What was the pressure like in the, in the studio? Because you must have been up against it time-wise on certain occasions, and especially when it came to releasing the Christmas album. Oh, man. I don't remember it being pressure. I really don't. Right. We loved it so much. Mm-hmm. And because we were prepared, you know, had we gone in there not having a clue, then that would be pressure. But everything was pre-done. It was pre-arranged. It was pre-thought out. The songs were pre-picked. And Wes was convinced they were good songs. I was convinced they were good songs. And when we go in there to record, it was just a formality for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I never felt any pressure. We just we got it done as fast as we could because mm-hmm. we loved doing that. But normally we would do three or four sides in three hours. That was our deal. Some of the paperwork on the sessions that say we rehearsed for three hours and then we sang for three hours. I don't ever remember that. I remember maybe that's just the way Ron wrote it up because although I was a contractor, I got so busy doing other things that I asked Ron to do it. And it paid a little bit more, but it wasn't worth my time. I had too many other things to do, writing and everything else. And um, so I had Ron do it. And I mean, we would rehearse a song before we sang it. We'd usually sing through it two or three times and then we'd have it and we'd, we'd do it. Mm-hmm. We sight read, so whatever was on the paper, that's what we did. And if Wes didn't like it, we'd change it. But most of the time, he loved it. You told me some time ago that watching David uh, was like seeing the emergence of a superstar. Oh, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. He had it. Whatever it is, he had it in spades. Yeah, when I saw him the first time, it was like, forget about it. I mean, forget about it. This guy's got it. He would have had it for years to come had he not been trying to drink his problems away or his perceived problems. As a singer, where where do you rate his talent? Oh, he's Frank Sinatra to me. He's uh, Ben Crosby. He's Barbara Streisand. He's the perfectionism of Streisand and and the professionalism of Sinatra, except he had more patience than Sinatra. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's just one of those one-of-a-kind, like those people I mentioned. And there's Elvis. It's another one, one one-of-a-kind. But Elvis believed in himself. (laughs) That was the difference. And even he had problems, so. Well, creative, hugely talented people always do. It's multiplied in their lives. Yeah, it's sad. Where do you rate his talent when you were working with him on his vocal arrangements, on his solo work? It's the same David. Same David, except he had grown. He had matured vocally. I think he was the same professional at 19 that he was at 22 or whatever. He was just a pleasure to work with. I never, ever had a problem with him, ever. You didn't feel that he could be an R&B singer, which is what he wanted to be. No, I don't. I just don't. He had soul, but it was white soul. And nobody could convince him of that, you know. And he wouldn't believe us, but he believed his buddies. And it's really, really sad that he would listen to his friends and not listen to professionals. I mean, later on in his life, he realized how much we taught him, how much he learned from us. But it was too late then. He was already at the door, you know. The different orchestrations that was put together for the live performances of Partridge Family songs took them to another level again. I can feel your heartbeat. Yeah. 
Because David opened a lot of his concerts with that. He opened his first ever concert with it, his outstanding Madison Square Garden concert with it. Oh, yeah. Well, David was so into that. I don't know if you noticed that um, when he did his television show about his life. Yeah. That was in the early 90s, was that? I know I was conducting for the Welk Orchestra here in Branson. And my brother called me and said, you got to get, you got to come do this. So I worked it out where I could miss uh, the shows here. And I flew home to do it. And um, VH1 was there. In fact, they, they interviewed my brother and I for hours. And we both told them, you know, we'd be happy to do this interview, but we want all the outtakes. We want the raw footage. Mm. They said, no, yeah, no problem. Never got it. It's 40 years. You know, kills me. Anyway, just, I wanted it for my grandkids, basically, you know, because we talked a lot about our careers and all of that. At any rate, we did this thing, and there um, there are pieces in there where they show David talking to the that song reminded me of this. Saw David talking to the to the band, and uh, he said, "When we recorded this, it was really good, but playing it live, that doom, 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 was much much harder." And that's one of the things that you're talking about, where you may not have realized that that. David was able to take those really emotional things and take them up a notch or two. And that totally changed the feeling of the song. And we got it. I mean, we got it when we recorded it. In fact, you may or may not have heard this <clears throat> about a week before or two weeks before my brother called me and said, David wants to do this and you got to come out and all that, blah, blah. My wife had found a box of all of my Partridge family arrangements. Okay. This is like, this is like, it had been 30 years or something like that. So when when the producer, I don't remember who it was that called me and told me what songs David wanted to do, I just reached in the box and pulled out the originals. So we get to the session and um, we're in the booth. I'm in the booth and I've got this chart for I Think I Love You laid out. And David looked over my shoulder and he said, man, wouldn't you love, wouldn't you give anything to know where the originals of this are. And I said, this is the original. David said, what? I said, these are all originals, David, look. Because I used to put Supergroup at the top. That's what my nickname was for the group, Supergroup. <laughs> and uh, I still have all of them. Oh. I've talked to several people about publishing them. Uh, I just don't know if there's enough of a market because choir music doesn't, first of all, there's no leads on them. Um, but that would be easy to take off a record. Uh, but I just don't know. In choir music, they sell for 75 cents a piece. I mean, it's like, so I don't know if there's any money in it or whether it's, because eventually I'll give them to like USC School of Music or something. I'll donate everything when I croak. What I asked my wife to do is any of the arrangements that I've saved, and I've saved pretty much all of them. Streisand, Jackson 5, Sinatra. Well, no, I didn't write for Sinatra. I lied. That was, it was uh, um, Dean Martin. Anyway, all of the people that I've written for, I have probably 80, 90% of it that I still have. That's amazing. Wow. I keep things. Yeah. Never throw anything away. Mm -mm. Uh -uh. My wife hates it. It always comes in handy. You never know. When, as soon as you throw it away, you're going to need it. Exactly. Exactly. I wanted to ask you if you felt there were any songs that you wish David had recorded. I asked that because your brother's composition of She's Out of My Life by Michael, I always thought David could have delivered that perfectly. He could have. He could have. Uh, I, don't know, I don't know why it was never brought up to him. <sighs> I really don't. Because it should have. He could have done a wonderful, completely different version, but no less heartfelt. No, absolutely. He lived that. I mean, my, Michael's version was wonderful. I, I remember yeah. some time ago hearing your 
brothers raw version of oh, it yeah, and right, that was emotional enough oh yeah before michael putting his emotion on but then the way david sang oh yeah no david would have put that oh, to bed he really would have yeah when my brother wrote that he called me it he was in new york and i was in la i think i think we were still in la we moved here in 94 so i can't remember when he wrote it. anyway he called me at about three in the morning my time he said i gotta sing you this song and he sang it to me kind of weeping while he was saying while he sang it and i knew what he had been through and i could hear the pain in his voice and when he finished he said uh, what do you think and i said it's a smash it's a smash hit and he gave it to quincy and quincy was holding it for frank sinatra he wanted frank to do it and frank would have done a great job with it but i don't think as good as michael's michael got into that i mean he really cried at the end and it was one take from Michael. He wanted to do it again. And Quincy said, no, no, man, you emoted on this thing so much. He said, I don't ever expect to get that again. This was a moment. I'm overruling you. This is the take. It was incredible. Just incredible. Uh, I've always been jealous of that because my brother's been living off of it for 20 years or more. <laughs> and you know, when Michael died, I called my brother. He was, um, I think he was on his friend's yacht in south of France or somewhere. Anyway, I called him. And I said, uh, I got some really terrible news. Michael Jackson just died. And he said, oh, get out of here. That's bullshit. He wouldn't believe me. And he called me a couple of days later and said, oh, Jesus, you're right. That was a killer for me because, as was David. But um, with David, I saw it coming. With Michael, I didn't. You know, I didn't see that at all because I knew he had trouble sleeping and I knew all of that. And um, I just wish, I confess, I wish I would have... Uh, talk more to them on the phone. I just am not a chatter. I don't pick up the phone and call people just to chat. You know, I just don't do that, which I should. Um, because all of a sudden a friend is gone and I have those same feelings. I wish, I wish, I wish. Um, and I just keep saying to myself, but because I was so close to both of them at one time, I'm really sorry that I didn't. I had their for personal phone numbers. Why didn't I pick up the phone and just chat? Why didn't I just talk? Because I really had a feeling I was more along the lines of the age of, excuse me, of David's father. Not that much. I was 20 years older than he, because he was 19 and I was 29 when Padre's family started. Or 10 years, I guess it's 10 years. Um, still, he was kind of like my kid, you know. And same with Michael. He was like a little brother to my brother and I. And we just didn't take the time because we respected his, his, um, uh, stardom and we didn't want to bug him mm. and both of them wanted to be bugged but uh but when michael died there was so much unfinished between us um none of it bad but so many things unfinished between us whether whether it was music or kids or people or whatever you know i mean i knew his whole family and um loved i worked with his he and his brothers for many, many years at Motown. That's how I met him. He was only like 11, although he was really 13. They said he was 11. Um, but I worked with them on such a personal level at Motown for so many years. Uh, and then when he went out on his own and he called me, it was just like, oh my God, this is awesome. And I had been called for that tour. And I got three calls. Do you have a passport? Yes. Can you be gone for months at a time? I said, yes. A couple of quick questions like that over the period of three phone calls over the period of three or four months, 
all of a sudden I didn't hear anything. Hear anything. And then when I saw, they had one white guy there. All the rest of them were black. And Michael saw no color, but people around him did. They were yes men. Nobody ever said no to Michael. I did. My brother and I both did. We also made him laugh. Not many people did. He was a prankster. He loved to do things like that. He loved to play tricks on people. But Tom and I always got him first, you know, and, and we would we would drop him to his knees in laughter <laughs> because we'd do something so stupid. But that's what I said. We're like brothers, you know, and it just it was like I lost a part of myself. I have a letter, uh, a note that Michael wrote to Janet and I after one of our visits to the ranch. I had it put away. I was saving it. When yeah. he passed, I had it framed. And... um I never walked by it. I don't think of Michael. And there's so many things that, God, he had a, because my brother did We Are the World. I did Heal the World, which is Michael's favorite song. That's why they played it last at his funeral or his memorial. Um, and he had up in the train station at the ranch, uh, Limoges had made him a world that was about this big with Michael holding hands with children that went all the way around. This, this thing was huge. And I saw that and I went, it was for Heal the World. And uh, I said, Michael, where do I get one of those? And he said, I'll get you one. I said, really? He said, yeah, no problem. I'll just have him make one for you. That's how much he appreciated my contribution, whatever. I never bugged him about it. I never got one. Um, and it isn't the Limoges, it's Michael. <laughs> it's what that meant to him and what it would have meant to me to be part of that. The other thing was his fedora. He and I were in, he used to call me in and we'd record four bars of this and eight bars of that. He'd, we'd have a meeting. He'd play me demos. I have tapes of all this. And um, I used to call him the Groove King. And that guy could write a groove in two bars that would just walk you out of the room and you didn't even want to leave, you know, one of those kind of things. And um, we'd have a meeting and he'd say, okay, this is what I want. And then I go home and I write four bars, eight bars. I still have those. And then I go in and he and I'd record all the parts. Well, one day he had his fedora sitting on a gobo, a gobo there. And I just picked it up and I put it on and it fit, it was like butter. I mean, it fit me like it was made for me. I said, Michael, I gotta have me one of these. And he said, you don't have one? And I said, no, he said, I'll get you one. Well, years later, I thought if I would have said, no, I'll just take this one, he would have said, okay. And I didn't because I respected him. And um, I guess all that's good. But in retrospect, now that he's gone, I would give anything to have those two things. Yes, of course. Of his, you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Uh, but I do have the letter. And, and um, uh, I went through the first court thing with him. We were doing an album. We're doing Dangerous. But that really took a lot of life out of Michael right there. Those two things. Because if, if anything, Michael was the epitome of unconditional love, period. I've said that a billion times. I will carry it to my grave. He was as pure and as holy as anybody I've ever been around in my life. He never swore. He never talked ill of people. I mean, I've talked to him about everything, about lawyers, about lawsuits, about all of this kind of stuff. And he, he always had a good thing to say about everybody. He was just that clean of a person. He was, he was the perfect guy. I know he wasn't, but to me... Uh, and to see him destroyed like that, just... How many times have we seen this through the years? The icons in, in our lives, always good-looking, decent people. Yeah. As you say, they would love you to death. They would yeah. support you, you know, through hell, fire, anything. Yeah. You were their friend. Took them for granted. 
Elvis is the same way. I got to know Elvis really, really well, quite accidentally. And in fact, there's a commercial playing in, in the United States right now for Toyota that has an Elvis song on it. Too much, uh, not enough conversation or too much conversation. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I had forgotten that I sang on it because it's 50 years ago. Did you really? I was one of the four. In fact, I have a, a newspaper clipping with the picture of us with Elvis. Now for the second time in two years, that, com- that music track has run for two different commercials and they pay really, really well. Let me tell you Good. something. Good. Good residuals and man, those checks come in the mail. They're awesome. Good. So yeah. anyway, I didn't mean to get off the... No, 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 not at all. I'm I mean, talking about Michael and I get emotional. How do you remember David? When we reunited uh, at his concert, it just breaks my heart. You know, when I saw him the last time, he performed here in Branson. It was about six months before he passed, seven months. And I took my son, uh, our oldest son, Greg, with me. And uh, we sat down and we were early, sat down in the audience and a guy I know came running up to me and said, David wants to see you. He heard you're here. He wants to see you right now. And I said, now? I thought we'd wait till after the show. No, now. He wants to see it now before the show. So anyway, he escorted Tom and I back, or Greg and I back. When Masami, his eyes got his biggest saucers. He ran to me and hugged me like I've never been hugged in my life. And uh, he kept saying how good it was to see me, and I'm so glad you're here. And, and then the show started, and he spent a third of the show talking about me, how much he had learned from me, how much the sound of the Partridge family was me, um, how the Partridge family would never have made as many records, uh, many as many hit records had it not been for me. I mean, he just went on and on and on and on. Between songs, um, before songs, during songs, oh, here's a John Baylor lick. Listen, you know, it's like, it was unbelievable. I mean, I, I, was, I was thrilled, but also kind of embarrassed. My son said later, he said, I think he said on Facebook, he said, the next time we go see David, I'm going to make my father get up on stage and sing with him because all I heard in my left ear all night was my bro- my father's harmony parts. <laughs> I was singing along. Couldn't help it. He was he had the audience in the palm of his hand. And uh, I'm so sad that I didn't get to go to any of his concerts. Never got to see him live until the last time I saw him last year. It really bothers me because he, he was beyond great. Those people come along once in a lifetime, but you, you put go. them in. You put him in the same category as you know, the Elvis, Frank Sinatra, Ricky yeah. Nelson, perhaps. There's Michael Jackson. I mean, they're all in a line, aren't they? Yep. And you know something about all of the people you mentioned, except maybe Frank, where when you catch them in real life, very humble people, very shy people. But you get them on stage, and holy God, <laughs> some something is turned loose or turned on. Unbelievable. No, I, I wish you had seen him in concert. I mean, I mean, I've seen clips, but I've heard so many stories like yours that just, I just am so bummed that I didn't get to see him. But I'm sure there's probably YouTube things of his shows and stuff, isn't there? I never heard a dumb note ever. No, never. I never did either. Come, come to think about it. I never, ever heard that. What a guy. We didn't spend that much time together outside the studio. But even then, you know, I, I've always been a, a pretty serious guy. And although I have fun and I have a sense of humor, um, I'm always focused on the prize, you know, whether it's shopping for date with David or, or we're in the studio and we're having fun, but 
I know what my job is and that's what I'm focused on. And yeah. that's what I do. I have one picture of him with me and that was me and my son the last time I saw him. I lied. There are a couple from the from his TV show that a still camera got a couple of pictures of Tom and I with him. But it's but they're we're not standing posing. We're just going over music, you know. Music wise, from something you said earlier on, do you think his musical direction should have taken a, a different path from seventy four onwards after he left the Partridge family? No, I think he wasted a lot of time trying to be an R&B singer. I really do. I think he wasted a lot of time. He uh, he was also not a Broadway singer. His his niche was what he did, uh-huh. I mean, he, but he didn't want to do that. He didn't want to sing bubblegum. Well, that's where the money is, man. Jeez. Yeah. I mean, but David did Broadway, and he was awesome, you know? I mean, he – and that's another reason his dad was jealous, because he did it better than his dad did. But you don't think he had a Broadway voice? Not really, but – but he certainly did an outstanding job with the coat of many colors. And what else did he do? He did two or three of them. Then, yeah. then the Vegas thing he just was awesome. But he was not him playing himself. But still, um, he was a great actor, just a great actor, and could sing think- like a bird on top of it. Do, do you think he was underappreciated as a singer? Not by his fans, but by the general public. Yes, I really do. I mean, we appreciated him. We were all professional, and we just thought he was, still do, think he was untouchable, you know. Yeah. Can I just ask you where you were when you heard of his passing? I think I was home. Um, I learned about it through Facebook. But like I said, with Michael, it hit me harder because with David, I expected it. I didn't expect it quite that soon. But when we met him, I mean, he... He was an alcoholic. He had his skin was that of an alcoholic. His his pallor was that of an alcoholic. Um, even though he was still handsome, uh, my stepfather was an alcoholic, and I know that. I know that look. I know that the skin, the pallor, the all of that. So it was hurtful, but I wasn't surprised. wasn't shocked. I was shocked with Michael. What is um, David's legacy? That's a good question, too. Uh, you know, no matter what he did after, Partridge family still is the biggest thing he ever did. Um, it, was a, it was bigger than life. And um, although he did, like I said, some Broadway stuff that was just fabulous and well-received, and you know, I think of him as being a consummate professional with a one-of-a-kind voice with an incredibly big heart. And he cared so much. He cared so much about people cared so much about his friends, uh, too much so. And Michael had that too, where you listen to people that you shouldn't listen to, you know that. But he is a, he's a superstar to be remembered as far as I'm concerned. And I, you know, the fact that 50 years later, we can listen to that music and it still plays today. Or is it because it brings back such memories of our childhood? I don't know. But I have adult friends of mine that, um, tell me all the time, and I listen to that music and say, man, it plays today. David's recording, your guy's background vocals. I mean, it doesn't sound dated. No. David thought it did. No, it wasn't dated at all. I mean, do you continue to be surprised and somewhat moved at how much people still value the work that you did and appreciate it? Very moved. Very moved and not completely surprised, but uh, I so appreciate it. I so appreciate it 
because at my age now, I'm an old guy trying to get into heaven. You know what I mean? So at my age now, I'm able to, this is going to sound weird, but I'm able to be humble enough to accept how great that stuff was. It's almost like it's so far that I'm apart from it, yet I knew I was part of it. But the more the more I gain friends on Facebook and the more people like you I talk to, and it's really found a home in my heart that this really, really did change a lot of people, changed a lot of lives, created a lot of memories. And I'm very grateful for that. Very grateful for that. And like I said, I listen to the music now. I listen to the parts that I wrote that I'm responsible for writing. And I can honestly say I could not do any better. I mean, I did the best that I could. And I listen to it now and say, yeah, I couldn't do better than that right now. So many times you write something and you hear it years later and say, oh, gee, I wish I would have ended yeah, whatever. But I listen to their stuff, all of it. And I say, no, I couldn't have done better. It is wonderful. You should be really proud of that. Hey, I am. Of what you've given the, the world of music. Well, I, I'm super proud of it. Like I said, I'm grateful and I'm moved that people after all these years have an appreciation. Uh, you know, it's kind of like, um, well, my life has meaning. You know what I mean? I just wasn't just a guy thrown here. I was a guy that was able to pursue his dreams. And in a lot of instances, those dreams had a lot of meaning for people's lives. And that's just beyond my comprehension. It really is. But I'm, like I said, I moved and, and very appreciative. I certainly will speak for the millions of fans out there who love the Partridge family music and what you bought us. And it's reaching a whole new generation as well. It is. That's the other thing that really blows me away, that even today, the music stands on its own today. And it's a team effort. It's not just me. I mean, it was the songs that Wes picked. It was David being there to sing them. It was us doing the backgrounds. It was Mike Melboy doing the track. I mean, it, it's all, and um, the mixing, I mean, all of it. You look at all of it. And so much of it was being done for the first time. And it set the standard for, for others to follow. Yeah, absolutely. They they tried to match it. Yeah, many people tried, but nobody succeeded. No. And I think it was because the team we had, there wasn't a weak link in that chain. Every person we had in there was the best at what they did and at their peak at the time. <laughs> you made You made magic happen in the lives of uh, millions of people all over the world. And when the stars are aligned, that's when magic happens. I believe that. Mm. I really, really do. And I, again, am grateful, so grateful that I lived when I lived. And Did you ever want to be a solo singer? Oh, and I'll tell you why, and you've heard this story today already. I couldn't find anybody I sounded like, so I thought I was worthless, kind of related to Michael or uh, David that way. So I was forced into doing solos. Hated it. Hated it. Um, it scared the crap out of me. I thought I sucked. And yet I look back now and so I just, before before I started the Zoom, somebody had sent me something on Facebook called John Baylor's Obligato Solos. And it's something on YouTube that's, excuse me, that's a um, Ray Conniff thing. Oh, yeah. And I you can hear me singing Obligato stuff in between the, the verses, um, which is really nice. And people send me stuff like that all the time, stuff that I don't remember doing. And, but I can tell it's me. You know, um, and then Love American Style and you know all the stuff I did for Charlie Fox. He just got me in a hammerlock and said, you're doing this. And then I worked for a guy that um can't think of his name right now. I think we lost him, too. He was a music director for Ice Capades. And he used me 
completely as his male soloist. And although listening to it back now, I did a pretty good job. But at the time, I just thought I sucked. And I'd record, do the best I could, and then get the hell out of there and try to forget about it. Right. <laughs> and, but I listen to it back now. Some people have sent me some stuff from way back then. And I say, you know what? That wasn't that bad. I forgive myself. What, what do you con- consider your best work? Wow. As a soloist or as a background singer? Let's go for both. Go for a soloist and as a background singer. Uh, well, there's a McDonald's commercial that I did as a solo, which uh, when I listen to it now, I can't even believe that I was able to sing that. It's very, very rangy, um, which is probably one of the best things I ever did. But I'd have to put in there, uh, well, obviously the Partridge family. We did some stuff for uh, Hugo Montenegro, who did Good, Bad, and the Ugly and Hang Em High. And, um, Ron and I did some stuff for him that was just unbelievable. It was hard and it was fun. Um, the same with Jerry Fielding, who was a composer who used uh, Jackie Ward and I because he loved our neuter sound. We didn't sound like a guy or a girl. She sang very low. I sang very high. And our unison sounded like a hybrid of something. And he loved it. He used this on all of his movies. Um, but probably the standout, and unfortunately, I don't know the name of the movie. I know it was Elmer Bernstein. But I was called by a friend of mine who's an instrumental contractor to be at Studio M Paramount, I think it was, um, at 2 o'clock. So you never ask questions. You know, you just did it. You didn't ask who it was for, how much money it paid. Or, and if you didn't like the producer, you just never worked for them again. You know, you're always too busy. That only happened to about three producers. But um, so I get I get called and I go there and I'm talking to all the musician friends of mine. They were all friends of mine because they had played in orchestras I had arranged for or whatever. So Jules Chaikin was the contractor and he came out and said, okay, guys, mount up. I looked at my watch and it was about five to two or whatever. And I walked into this room and here's an 80 piece orchestra. I, I noticed that I don't see any singers around. And there's this 80 piece orchestra and this sound stage, and right in the middle of the, between the French horns and the trombones is a vocal booth, three-sided vocal booth with a top on it, a music stand and a microphone. That was me. So he wrote me with the trombones and the French horns, no lyrics. He just liked the texture mixed with those horns. And after doing half the session, we broke for lunch and we went across the street to this little um, cafeteria that was there where all the stars used to eat. And, um, Right behind me in line was the engineer, real tall guy, good looking guy. I can't think of his name, but he was famous in Hollywood. He was just great. Real laid back, but now he knew what he was doing. He said, Baylor. And I turned around and said, yeah. He said, I just have to say something to you because nobody said it. He said, we've done half this movie and you're out there all by yourself, not getting pitched from anybody, sight reading this whole thing. And we've never had to stop a take because of you. I said, wow, that makes me feel really good. I'm part of the orchestra. <clears throat> you know, it's what I always wanted to be. I always wanted to be a trumpet player in the orchestra. Unfortunately, I've looked up Elmer's um, movie credits, and I don't recognize the name of any of them, so I'm just going to have to, maybe I should talk to his son or somebody, because I think it's the only one he ever did that way. Right. So I should be able to find out, because I'd, I'd like to know about it before I croak so my grandkids can hear it, you know? Oh. It was a, like a one-of-a-kind thing to have one voice in the middle of all that orchestra, you know, was, and that was a thrill. I walked out of there five feet off the ground. Wow. At the end of the day, they still hadn't had to stop a take because of me. And I had, there were like places where I'd have to wait 32 bars and then come in. 
but thank God I had good pitch. And I just think of it as a trumpet player and down a step. Think of it as a trumpet player and just sing it. It's funny. I heard Frank Sinatra say exactly the, the same thing. How did he get the pitch when he first started singing? And he said exactly the, the, the same thing. No, if you have good relative pitch, you know it. You know what it is. Yeah. Don't have perfect pitch. That perfect pitch is a misnomer. Because if you have perfect pitch, you can't listen to an orchestra or a piano because uh, it, the, the intervals between the pitches are not perfect. So it's called a tempered scale. They're tempered so that they, the chords sound right. A, perfect, a person with perfect pitch hears an orchestra and it's completely out of tune. They can't handle it. People that are like that, but I've met two of them and, and they have to walk out of a concert. They can't stay there. It's just too painful. So I don't have perfect pitch, neither does my brother, but we have excellent relative pitch and, and good, great pitch memory. Can everybody sing? No. And I don't know if it's a, because it's a gift that only some people get. And then I think of the Mormon church. I was dating a Mormon girl for years, and um, everybody in that church could sing. Well, what's up with that? And then you go to a black church, and everybody in that choir can sing. And I know that there are people who can't carry a tune. I mean, my wife's a great singer, and she and I have sung together a lot on recordings and stuff over the years. Everybody in her family is a great singer. But I've run into a lot of people who can't carry a tune. Mm. Wes Farrell being one of them. <laughs> really? Oh, he couldn't carry, he couldn't sing. Ooh, ooh. You know, he was always hoarse. So he'd come out and say, no, 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 John. This, and this is in front of the whole group. No, 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 John, this is what I want. I go, okay, Wes, I got it. And I'd write a few notes down. He'd go in and I'd just say, sing it, guys. Just sing. Sing what I wrote. And we'd sing what I wrote. And he'd say, that's it. That's perfect. I have no idea how I knew, but maybe I didn't. Maybe I just guessed and that was right. Wonderful. Wes couldn't hold a tune in a bucket. Man, that guy had great ears. That's he wonderful. knew. Well, that doesn't mean that somebody can't learn the techniques, but singing is, there is so many room, there's so much room for error in singing, because it's like playing the violin, you move your finger a little bit and it's wrong. Um, so with singing, in my opinion, you have to have a really exceptional ear, but it has to tra translate to your mouth. And you can match that pitch. Mm. Like I tell, I used to tell students, the best way to train your ear is to go up to a piano, especially if you're in school and you go by the piano room or whatever, go over and play a middle C on the piano. It's usually before between the Y and the A in Yamaha. And play that middle C and then walk on. But do that every single day. Like for two weeks, go in and play that middle C. And then after two weeks, go in there and try to sing it before you play it. And then you sing it, you play it, you say, oh, that's not right. How far was I wrong and where was I wrong? And you keep doing that, you'll train your ear to be able to hear pitch remember pitch and if you do that in my opinion if you do that long enough and learn all the notes on the scale to hear them and to sing them then you should be able to sing any tune so that's why i say trumpet players are great singers always because you have to hear what you're going to play on trumpet before you play it same with violinists they have to be able to hear it if you can't hear it you can't play it the other thing i came up with that my wife thinks is the greatest thing i've ever said ever in music was when i said vowels make the pitch consonants make the rhythm and that's completely true even with soft consonants like w or wh it's a consonant it's not a vowel yeah. but you have to start it early so that the vowel hits on the beat if you don't if you start the sound 
on the beat, you're going to be late. So the trick to all of it is to know that the consonants makes make the rhythm and the vowels make the pitch. It's that simple. I mean, it came to me one day and I thought, you know what? That's really true. I taught a, a class at USC for one semester, but I couldn't afford it. They didn't have the budget and I couldn't afford it after one semester. But I, two of the guys out of a 15 student class are still making money in music. So that's not too bad. Two out of 15. Good. But yeah, I t- it was a background singing class and I really, really loved it. It's still going on being taught by somebody else, but right. they didn't teach it the way I did. I took the kids in, took them into my studio. The very first day, very first class day, I would take them into my studio and give them a chart to sing, break them up into groups of five and give them a chart to sing. I'd record it and then I'd give them a cassette, each one of them a cassette. And then at the end of the semester, we'd go back in with a different chart, break them up into fives and record them so they'd have that, how they, well, how much they learned and where they started. Right. But the price of cassettes was killing me. Yeah, I bet it was. <laughs> 15 yes. cassettes every time I did it. Can you give us a few notes? What kind? Love of American style, truer than the red, white, and blue. Love American style, that's me and you. That's a little bit of one. That's great. <laughs> do you still enjoy singing? Yeah, I don't get to do it much anymore. When we first moved here to Branson, I did a lot because being the musical director of the Welk Orchestra, we had to pre record all the choir stuff because. We had sometimes 17 stars in front of the band and you get 17 live mics in front of a 20 piece orchestra mm. and uh, try to mix that. It's not possible. So we'd pre-record the, the solos were live, but all the choir parts were pre-recorded. Right. And I go in there with only like four or five people and we would we would sing all the parts one at a time, triple track. So we get this choir sound with just a few people. Mm. And so we sang a lot. Um, I sang a lot. And then my brother produced the show for a couple of years, and he not only made me the MC, which was really fun. I really enjoyed that. Didn't think I would, but I loved it. And then several duets with my wife, and then several solos he'd have me do. And it was fun. It was really, really fun. I enjoyed it. I, I loved conducting. I loved the orchestra. I loved writing. And my brother had me writing in styles I had never written in my life, and I learned so much. Through my ignorance, a lot of times I'd have fights with him about, that's not going to work, and that sucks. And he'd be right, and I'd have to say, I apologize, you're ever right. He's my little brother, so he can't always be right. I have a good friend of mine who's a recording engineer and, and um, had several projects where Michael Cathcart, my nephew, Peggy, Peggy Lennon's son, is an unbelievable piano player and singer. He's just awesome. He would hire Michael and I to go in and sing backgrounds for him. It was really fun. I was singing, I'm just... Four or five years ago, I was singing high B flats and C's, full voice. I mean, that's, and I'm old, but thank God my brother and I still have our voices. You know, we yeah. still sound the same. Years ago, I I, uh, I can't remember all of them now, but, but there were five traits that I came up with uh, looking at superstars, mainly singers. Uh, and there were five traits that I would look for. And I'll be darned if every single one of them had those five traits. And then I take another singer who was missing one of those traits and that's why they weren't a star. There are five traits is like believability, having the talent, being able to use the talent. I can't remember exactly what they were. I should have, should have written them down back then. But I went through the gamut of all of the famous people going back years up to the present of that time, which is probably in the 80s. I was saying this, but you, you know, I would take somebody that was really easy for me to record, but in person on stage, they were 
they'd bore you to tears. Right. And you had to take other people who were incredible on stage and you couldn't get them on tape. When I say you couldn't get them on tape, you couldn't get a realistic version of them on tape. You take people who are great in person and great in the studio. <laughs> I mean, there's two really important ones right there. And all the greats have that. When you're working with Barbara Streisand, I'd never worked with anybody that was more anal than me. You know, she was a perfectionist to, to drive you crazy. Um, I remember telling her to shut up, shut up and sing, Barbara. And she respected that. She liked me for a long time until I couldn't. I was mixing her album with, along with Hank Sakala, her uh, Butterfly album. And um, I had eight tracks of her. And I had, we didn't have any other tracks for me to bounce her to. So I had to, during the mix, I had to go from track to track to track, sometimes in the middle of words and stuff, to get the best performance. 3.30 or 4 in the morning, and I missed one of the mute buttons. She said, what's that? She, was, she and John Peters were sitting down in front of the console. What's that? And I said, nothing, Barbara. I just missed it. It's missed one of my cues. I apologize. I said, we were tired, you know, been there forever. She said, no, no, no. I want to hear all the eight tracks. So I had to play each track for that phrase. And she said, I hate all of them. I want to redo them. So Hank had to start pulling out patch chords, getting from mixing to recording. Went out and we recorded that section of that phrase of all eight tracks. And she was happy. No, but it's crazy. And then we had to get get all the way back into where we were in the mixing process as far as outboard gear and the patching and all that. It was such a pain, but that's how she was. Yeah. Somebody asked me one time, what's the best producer you ever worked for? And I said, John Peters. The hairstylist? And I said, yeah. The reason, and John Peters ended up going, being a billionaire. John Peters was, was one of those few producers who would do his homework, find out who the best was in any particular any particular place in the process. Mm. We hired them and then let them do their job. He was really, really great that way. And I loved doing that album with him. And Barbara, after she got to know me, she she kept whining to John, you know, I want John Baylor to come to there was a concert we had to do at the end of the album for all the CBS executives in LA and New York. And it was done at Columbia right after the album was finished, was mixed. I want John to perform. I want John to conduct for me. And she said, and John said, I'm sorry, but you already hired uh, Clarence McDonald. He's a black piano player who's awesome piano player, but not a good conductor. We didn't know that. And uh, she kept saying, I want John. And he said, I can't just fire him for no reason. He hasn't done anything yet. Mm -hmm. So she was not happy. She really wanted me to do it. So we get to rehearsal and I was there about 30, 40 minutes early. And so was Barbara. And she said, oh, you're just the guy I'm looking for. What? Remember on those two songs you were telling me that, you know, you heard brass on this one and a couple of string things on this one? And I said, yeah. She said, do you think you could do it for today? So I said, sure, Barbara. I went in the corner. I had score paper with me. I always carried score paper with me. And I went in the corner and I started writing out horn parts and string parts and whatever. And the orchestra had started the rehearsal. And then I heard... I just, I didn't hear it. I just noticed that there was silence for a long period of time. Finally, I see this shadow walking over to me. I looked up and it's Clarence. And he said, uh, uh, John, could you do me a favor? And I said, sure, what is it? He said, I'm having a little bit of problem um, conducting this, this piece. Would you help me out? And I said, sure, what is it? He said, people. Because the beginning is all following her. People do da da. People who live do da da are the luckiest people in the world. And rhythm comes in. So I get over there and get up on the podium because it was about sixty piece orchestra. 
We had probably 40 strings. It was great. In rehearsal, I get up on the podium. I started the, the tune, boom, people. And uh, instead of singing people, she said, you know, John, I don't have any bow music. I mean, they sent over bow music, but it's like one, half of one is one bow music and half another is another bow music. I said, we'll take care of it, Barbara. We're really running late and this orchestra costs money and whatever. And she said, yeah, but I need my bow music. How in the hell, how am I going to do it? How am I going to get off stage if I don't have any bow music? She kept going on and on and on. And I swear to God, and pardon my French, I turned to her and I said, Barbara, shut and sing. And I went, boom, and she went, people, like Jerry Lewis, da, 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 people who need people. Well, at the end of it, the string section applauded. I ended up doing the concert. One of the, one of the top guys at CBS came up to me afterwards and said, my God, I've never, seen, I've never seen a conductor and a singer so in sync in my life. He said, how long have you and Barbara been working together? And I literally said, since 3.30 this afternoon. <laughs> He said, no way. And I said, yeah. And then his, um, her manager came to me and, or called me the next day and said, you know, we're planning a worldwide tour, uh, Russia being one of the stops. It'll be the first American to appear in Russia in 50 years or whatever it was. Barbara would love for you to conduct. And I said, absolutely. I'm there. We never went because she's chickened out. If she can be a character. I told her, I said, my God, on Broadway, think of all of these wonderful plays you've done and you've yeah. sung incredibly well. She said, yeah, but I wasn't me. I was playing somebody else. That's easy to do. I said, well, pretend you're Barbara Streisand. Then, you know, and she was, had stage fright like you wouldn't believe. And so the concert never happened. And it was really too bad because that would have been uh, the next high point in my life was conducting for and singing with Andy Williams at, in Vegas. That was in the early 70s. And that was yeah. While I was doing Partridge Family, I was doing that too. He had such a wonderful voice. Oh, Andy was another one of a kind, but he, but he knew it and took yeah. advantage of it. My goodness, John, been a fascinating and enthralling few hours. Thank you. Well, I'm glad. I, I, I thank you so much for including me in this. I'm, I'm um, humbled and thrilled. I, I just think David's legacy is important. I do too. I really, really do. And I'm so happy to be a part of it. How can you sum him up? Well, one of the nicest guys I ever met, one of the most professional guys I ever met, as I said earlier, one of the most caring people I ever met. He had such a good heart. I mean, he would give you the shirt off his back, and he did. Recollection, I don't think I ever took advantage of anybody that I worked with. You know, never even entered my mind. Feel that way. Just feel like we missed it. We could have helped, and we didn't. It's a tragedy for the world, as far as I'm concerned. We lost somebody that was very, very special. One of a kind. It's amazing. That one person can have that amount of impact on yeah. the world, which is what you're talking about. You know, you're not Absolutely. talking, of, he didn't ju- just touch America. No, he touched everywhere, as those kind of people do. Yeah, he had the it factor, but he there also had this almost spiritual presence. If he knew how much he was loved. I, I certainly, other than chatting him up on the phone more, uh, which I didn't do, I couldn't have loved him any more than I did. When I saw him, he knew it. But at least he knew it. I mean, we can we can rest in the idea that he at least, at the end, realized how much everybody cared. Yeah. I have so enjoyed this evening. Oh, well, thank you. I have too. Waited a long time, but it's been worth it. I know. I, I apologize for no, that. No, 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 no. Your health comes first. You know, that has to be. Yeah, yeah it does now if I want to stick around. Yeah, but you're going to be around for a long time. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs>
long as it, you know, I told my wife, I said, they can take everything else away from me. As long as they don't take my brain, I'm okay. Yeah. My mom had Alzheimer's and, but she had it as early as in her early sixties. So I would have known by now. My dad was sharp as a tack. His mother, my dad's, my grandmother lived to be 95 and she was sharp as a tack all the way up to the end. So I expect to live on those genes and so does my brother. Yeah. We don't, I don't feel 80. My brother doesn't feel 77, but we are. So, all right, my dear, thank you right. so much. Well, it's been my pleasure. Oh, it's been wonderful.